This is a Federal News Network podcast. The State Department's new Bureau of Cyberspace and Digital Policy started up just about eight weeks ago. For what it's doing and what it's all about, we turn to the Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary, Jennifer Backus. Ms. Backus, good to have you on. Thank you for having me. Let's begin with what this bureau is all about. What's it supposed to do? So the Cyberspace and Digital Policy Bureau is focusing on three distinct aspects of cyberspace and digital policy, which is the national security, economic opportunities, and human rights elements of this field. And because it's the State Department, you're talking about the occurrences of these things overseas, correct? Well, of course, the primary focus is on cooperating with our friends, partners, and allies, leading the interagency to come up with an externally focused policy, not a U.S. domestic focused policy. But of course, it does require coordination with other departments like the Department of Homeland Security, Department of Defense, etc., And in looking outside beyond the United States, what are some of the goals for cybersecurity and cyberspace and digital policy? What are we trying to achieve here? Well, I think what we're trying to achieve is we're trying to put forward a positive vision for the Internet. And specifically, what we believe in is an open, reliable, secure, and interoperable Internet. So those are what we talk about. So this is a positive vision of what the Internet is and should be into the future. That's our main goal. Because it's a little complicated. I've read certain accounts that describe the fact that really the world has three Internets now. There's the Western Internet that we share with Western Europe, EU nations, I guess to some extent South America. But then there's the Chinese and North Korean type of Internet and then maybe a third area of the Internet, say Russia and the Eastern Bloc or something like that. Those are kind of old-fashioned ways of looking at the world in some ways. But really, the universal Internet is no longer. So is that your view, or are you looking just to make sure the people that understand the world as the United States roughly understands it make sure that we stay together? Well, I would start by saying that, of course, there's a lot of talk about what people term splinter net between various parts. But at this point, we haven't actually seen that. There are efforts by China and others to limit access to information, but the Internet is universal and people are still able to access that information. Of course, they use a variety of workarounds and other things, but I would say there is still one Internet today. And the U.S. and its allies are trying to lead to ensure that people throughout the world continue to have access to information, regardless of where they're physically located. So would this be fair analogy that you're almost trying to have a radio-free Europe type of approach to the Internet such that people in Russia and China, North Korea, a lot of countries, probably 50 countries, can, even with workarounds, be able to access information that's true and unbiased and so on? I would agree that it is important that people around the world continue to have access. And it is a little bit like Radio Free Europe, but of course, it's also preserving what's existed since the dawn of the Internet, as opposed to creating something new. It's trying to make sure that there isn't this fragmentation of the digital economy, nor of digitization around the world. So this is, of course, part of it is making sure that people have access to information. It's also trying to make sure that Places that haven't been able to benefit from the arrival of the Internet can and do in a way that's, again, with this vision of an open, interoperable, secure and reliable Internet. So some of it's about preserving what exists and then rolling out continued accessibility around the world. 
in that sense, then, it's a really competitive situation with China and Russia, primarily China. Well, they, of course, have a different vision of the Internet that they are attempting to portray around the world. But we think that when you talk to people, that that's not the vision that they ultimately want. And yes, it is a competition over vision. And that's why it's important that we retain our leadership in this sphere and we elevate it through the creation of this bureau. We're speaking with Jennifer Backus. She's the Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for the Bureau of Cyberspace and Digital Policy, again, operating just about eight weeks now. And you will not be the permanent head because the State Department is seeking a Senate-confirmed head? That's correct. There will be an ambassador at large who will be the head of the Bureau. And what is the experience in the meantime that you're bringing to it? Well, I'm a longtime career diplomat. I've been working at the State Department for 24 years now, deployed all over the world, uh, representing U.S. interests overseas in nearly every region of the world. So what I bring is specifically this vision of what it is our embassies need and what our embassies do overseas. The greatest resource that the State Department has is our presence around the world. So it's great to make policy in Washington, and we do that, but then you have to figure out how to deploy that policy overseas and respond to what the people working in the embassies, talking to our friends, our allies, and even the people who aren't our friends and allies about these issues. And let's talk about the Bureau itself. Often new government structures pull from existing ones and kind of reconstitute things. Is that what happened here? What are some of the elements that came into this new Bureau? Yeah, so I do like to say that while the Bureau is new, what we've been doing on these issues has been around for decades. So we took the office that was doing cybersecurity called SCCI. We took the Economic Bureau's office that was doing the economic policy elements. We brought those in under one tent, and then we added a digital freedom unit, and that's completely new, as well as a strategic planning and communications element so that we can be thinking a big picture, thinking about the way ahead. So again, we had about 60 positions already existing, and we're adding about 40 more. So we'll be about 100 total when the Bureau is completely up and running. And is it physically located in Washington, D.C., presuming people will be going back to the main state building? Yes, we are located in Washington, D.C., in the main State Department building. All right. And where will you get those 40 extra people that you want to bring in? Well, it will be a mix, of course. It'll be a mix of people already working in the U.S. government or working in the State Department. There's a lot of enthusiasm around this. But, of course, we'll be looking outside the State Department and outside the U.S. government as well. We've been getting emails from sort of around the United States, people excited by this idea and who want to join us in leading on these issues. And what about the Defense Department? Are they a collaborator in this effort? Because, you know, for many years, that's been the cry from successive defense secretaries. We need more from the State Department. And of course, they have the cyber warfare and cyber domain issue for defense which maybe can be in conflict with what the State Department is trying to do. So how do you collaborate with DOD? So again, over my 24 years in the State Department, I've recognized the important element of collaboration across the interagency. A Department of Defense is, of course, one important element of who we work with around the world. So I think some of it is about setting up the systems that maintain this good communication, whether it's biweekly phone calls, email exchanges. Uh, we also have a political advisor who's at the uh, Cyber Command now. That person went a couple weeks ago and, again, gives us a, a good connectivity with them. So there's both the sort of me 
the working level communication, collaboration, coordination, as well as this embedded person at Cyber Command. And from what you can tell, Congress has a pretty strong interest in the success of this bureau also, doesn't it? Yes. Congress had very strong views about how to set up the Bureau, and we really worked very closely with them to make sure that we recognized and incorporated their point of view on how we should be leading in these issues. So that's been great. And what will you do once that Senate-confirmed Bureau head comes in? Well, then I'll go back to sort of the more traditional Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary role, which is You know, it's a little bit like being the chief operating officer, we say. So you make sure that the bureau is well run. You give overall guidance. You make sure that people have the things they need in order to be successful. And then, of course, so you're advising down to the deputy assistant secretaries, the coordinators, et cetera. But you're also advising up to the ambassador at large, the person themselves. And will you still get to travel around some and do a little diplo yourself? Well, I hope so. But really, it's always a very close collaboration and sort of figuring out where the value added is and making sure as well that we have somebody in Washington uh, manning the shop, should we say, because even when you're traveling, there's still things like interagency meetings that you need to have the high level State Department participation in. Right. And at 24 years in State Department, you're still relatively young. So you've got a lot of other things you might be able to do in the future. Uh, always possible. Always possible. One never knows in the State Department where they're going to end up. It's uh, what's amazing about being a Foreign Service officer is it's having the opportunities to to sort of see the world, assist U.S. interests overseas, support our allies, partners and friends. And uh, you never know where you're going to end up doing that. And I find that to be one of the great benefits of this career. Jennifer Backus is the Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for the Bureau of Cyberspace and Digital Policy. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. I appreciate it. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader? And what about them inspired you? You I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League Baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy. His name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had a wad of tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her. I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there are so many leadership lessons and things that I just 
really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village. That was, I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, at, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style? And, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a social security administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of the Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, 
I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi- historical to current uh, current times, I just it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is. I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. <coughs> Cough and cold season is here. Introducing Ricola Max Throat Care, Ricola's most powerful drop yet. It's the best of Swiss nature wrapped around a powerful liquid menthol center for maximum relief from your worst cough and sore throat. Maximum nature for maximum relief. Try the new Ricola Max now, available in the cold and cough aisle. It's in our nature.